Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Simon Nam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm excited to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Nitin Adapa. As an associate professor at Penn Medicine, Dr. Adapa is a leading figure in rhinology and skull-based surgery, with a substantial role in advancing the field through both his surgical innovations and scholarly contributions. Beyond his clinical expertise, Dr. Adapa directs marketing strategies for his department, skillfully bridging patient care with strategic healthcare communication. In this session, we'll dive into the latest advancements in skull-based surgery and the intersection of clinical excellence and marketing in healthcare. All right. Yeah. Just to start off, what has been your journey thus far and how'd you come to where you are today? Totally fair question. So I, I, knew, I knew medicine early on. I wasn't sure on otolaryngology. Full disclosure, my father is an ENT. So there was a little bias there, but early on, I was actually interested in neurosurgery more than anything else. And I did some rotations during medical school, and I really liked this. I actually loved the surgery of neurosurgery, but part of my issue is I realized my personality feeds off patients quite a bit. And a lot of the neurosurgery saw had some outcomes that were less than desirable. And it was a little bit that I realized I'd be taking that home with me a lot. And I wanted to feel that while I was okay with some of this, I wasn't okay with a lot of my patients doing this. So there's a little bit of self-awareness in this. And so ENT allowed me to go into a field where there are some patients with outcomes that are less than ideal for patients and outcomes, but there's a lot of happy patients out there. And, and that's something that actually makes me really happy. So I was able to mold my interests into an area where the majority of patients do quite well. And I do still have some cancer patients who have issues and family has have struggles, but it's not a huge percentage of my practice. And that was my first and best self-aware aspect of knowing that I would be unhappy in some other fields. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like ENT also has a lot of overlap with neurosurgery and you work with neurosurgeons a lot. Uh, was it something that went into your consideration when choosing a specific subspecialty within ENT or it just happened serendipitously? No, I, I mean, I think you're completely right. I was interested in, in ENT for the reasons of the technical aspects, the surgical aspects, the anatomy, the as we talked about the outcomes. But then I naturally gravitated back towards neurosurgery where about half my case, so about 50% of my volume are joint cases I work with the neurosurgeons here doing endoscopic uh, skull-based surgery. So I thought it was interesting. The other aspect I like, I'm really into technology. And a lot of areas of surgery have been very stale, quite honestly, versus endoscopic sinus and skull-based surgery has been a very technology-driven field. Obviously, the endoscope itself, but we use a lot of different devices for tumor ablation. There's something called image guidance technology where we essentially have a GPS going on during surgery, identify where we are. New technology coming out with actually specific mapping of tumors that we can use both during surgery and also improve our radiation therapy efforts. So that technology aspect I really liked as well. Yeah, there's a lot of cool tech in ENT. And also, I was going through an infectious disease. That was our last block in medical school. And apparently chronic rhinosinusitis is the most common chronic infection it, it's such a ubiquitous pathology that everyone has to deal with, and ENTs are at the forefront of that, right? Absolutely. And the treatment for that is also the paradigm itself continues to shift. So chronic rhinosinusitis is what you talked about. You think about it as infection, and that's what most people think of it, but a lot of it is more inflammatory, which is more the body's response to the environment. Think of it like asthma, where the body's responding poorly, causing swelling and edema of the tissue that then you can get infections on top of it. So it's not just totally infectious, it's this inflammatory component that when we do good surgery, 
we're allowed to get topical therapies uh, into the nasal cavity and essentially decrease all that edema and swelling and improve their outcomes. And in terms of your day-to-day practice of skull-based ENT, what are the bread and butter procedures, techniques, not just in terms of surgical procedures, but just your d- different practices within the field? Love it. So skull base, I hope none of it's bread and butter, but I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, so my practice, which is every otolaryngologist can be a little bit different and you can essentially, sh- and, and that's what I liked about it. You really could shape your practice any which way. There are a number of otolaryngologists in the community who will see patients four days a week and operate one day a week. I'm on the opposite end where I see patients about one day a week and I'll operate four days a week. And obviously you can be somewhere in the middle of that. So for me as a, what we call a rhinologist, rhinology and skull-based surgeon, what I typically do is I'll have one day where I'm doing my more bread and butter sinus surgery. So that's your, your sinus surgery for chronic sinusitis, like you discussed. And then I've got another couple days where I'll be doing more of the skull-based surgery. And skull-based surgery, it's a little bit of a catch-all term. It both can be sinus tumors that don't invade into the brain. So it's along the skull base between the aspect of the top of the sinuses that go right to the brain. Or conversely, they can be surgeries where you have to traverse that bony landmark to get into the brain for a neurosurgeon. So there's a little bit of variety there. So there's another couple of days or one day I'll do that traversing into the brain with a neurosurgeon. And then the other day I'll do skull base tumors, which are more sinonasal tumors itself that we're resecting typically without our neurosurgeons. And you kind of alluded to it while you're talking about your interest in ENT, but the technology, the cutting edge innovation within the field that's going on, where do you see that innovation happening? Is it in the diagnostics of identifying disease or how we characterize disease? Or is it more in like the procedures that that are done or is it just a mix of everything? So right now it's still a little bit more in the procedural and treatment arm. And I think that's probably a bit financially driven by industry because that's where they see the reimbursement for it. So there hasn't been as much in the diagnostic arm um, that has radically changed in recent times. For for sinusitis or sinus tumors, we use an endoscope, which is a camera we're looking in the nose, and we have the tech around that. But we haven't had any major advances on that. And again, I wonder if it's more from a reimbursement standpoint that that hasn't changed too much. But the backside of actual treatment and outcomes is really where the technologies come to focus. And I feel like I just start wondering about how reimbursement and how insurance or industry interact with the practice of surgery or medicine and learning about these CPT codes and that getting CPT codes for devices or getting FDA approved. It makes me wonder like the extensive process involved with just, I guess, the financial aspect of medicine but also how that plays into like how innovation is developed within medicine and the interplay of all of those. In in your perspective, how have you seen the landscape of reimbursement affecting innovation within ENT? I mean, there's no question it's affected it. I mean, at the end of the day, there have been many companies who have been successful because they were able to create CPT codes around some of their products, procedures. And there are many companies who have not been successful because of their inability to do that. So Unfortunately, that is very financially driven. And at the end of the day, quality still wins out. So without naming any names, there have been companies that have created CPT codes. And initially, there was a large wave of those procedures done. And then ultimately, when you identify after some period of time that these don't work that well, even with a CPT code, these companies don't tend to do so well because just people aren't going to do it. And you, at the end of the day, you like to believe that medicine is about doing the right thing for patients. So if there's a procedure out there, even if it's created and has a CPT code, 
if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So at the end of the day, quality still wins out on this. But yeah, a lot of this industry is driven by that initial reimbursement, quite honestly. I mean, that that makes sense. They will typically, what's interesting to me is they will typically reach out to high-level centers such as ours, um, really identifying whether certain products or ideas are interesting. I do consult with a couple of companies. So I, I've met with a number of companies, with a lot of products that I usually I'm not interested in. But the few that I'm really interested, you know, it's fascinating. That's part of why we went into this is to, to get better outcomes for our patients. So I, I do like to consult with companies and work with companies on that aspect. Yeah. And there seems to be a push for value-based care uh, these days. And I feel like it's kind of crept into like orthopedics and spine surgery initially with bundled payment packages and trying to have a care paradigm shift more towards having a set of clinicians or healthcare providers focusing on like the supply chain of patient care to in order to cut costs where it's not necessary, but also focus on the patient's outcomes at, at the end. So how do you see this, I guess, new era of the way we think of reimbursement or how care is delivered affecting uh, ENT in the future? So I think value-based care is coming, whether you like it or not. I think fundamentally it makes a lot of sense to me that that makes more sense than rewarding somebody for doing procedures over and over again, potentially. So ultimately, that I think the concept of value-based care makes the most sense. The question is, how do you implement that, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen here, right? So you've got you've got industry that we just talked about. You've got pharmaceutical. We've got the health insurers. We've got the patient. We've got the health system. We've got the clinicians. I mean, there's a lot of people who want their bite of this as well. So my bigger question is, based on that, how quickly does it come? And in what iteration of that does it come? I, I think there's no question value-based care is coming. And again, like I said, I, I think it's ultimately the best thing for the patient. And honestly, for our country as a whole, from a treatment paradigm, it, it makes the most sense. But what iteration of this and how that moves forward, that I have just as many guesses as you do. Yeah. And you're talking about how, or we, we were talking separately about how pediatric skull base surgery is the next frontier of research that's going on in, within skull base ENT. And I know we were talking about reimbursement. Uh, reimbursement for pediatrics in, in general is kind of a gray area just because it's hard getting CPT codes, I feel like, for pediatric procedures or developing pediatric devices for companies just from like a financial benefit. And so how does research in pediatric skull-based surgery interact with how reimbursement operates? And are those two separate entities or do you see them interacting with each other? So I think there's two separate entities. So I do think to the best of my understanding that the CPT codes kind of travel across from adult to pediatric. So again, to your point, there needs to be additional resources put in if you want to get FDA approval for certain certain indications for certain devices. There needs to be for a CPT for a new CPT code. You do need to go through the process. That said, at least what we're doing, we're able to translate the same surgery to the pediatrics, which was interesting. So, if, to tell you how this started, we started doing this in 2010, and prior to 2010, there's a number of papers that essentially say you can't do it. They're too small. You can't do this type of surgery in those type of kids. And quite honestly, we weren't sure. We worked with our colleague, Dr. Jay Storm. He's the chief of pediatric neurosurgeon at CHOP. And he brought us a case that we thought was a pretty favorable case in a six-year-old. And we said, well, listen, we've got us. We've done a lot of these in adults. We had him actually come over and work with us on some of the adult cases where he worked with one of our other neurosurgeons just to get a little bit more feel for the endoscopic aspect because a lot of pediatric neurosurgeons don't have that experience. 
And then what we did, what was interesting was we actually took the patient and we had the patient intubated by anesthesia over a CHOP. They then intubated, took the patient under the tunnel into the adult hospital. The CHOP anesthesiologist came with them, joined force with the adult anesthesiologist regarding the special needs we have from an anesthesia side. We then out our adult nurses and scrub techs who know what they're doing because they have the experience train the pediatric scrub techs at the same time. And we did our first five cases. We did that. And then after we finished the case, the patient would go back down the elevator, back across the underground tunnel, back to CHOP, and it was extubated CHOP. So we, it was very thoughtful, the first about five cases we were going to do, because again, no one had really done any real volume of these type of cases. There was a case report here, case report there, but nothing big. Then once we got that, then we started going over to CHOP and doing these type of cases and really pushing the envelope as far as how young uh, patients we could do it. And fortunately for us, and kind of what you alluded to a little bit or asked about, is there were, we didn't really need any new tech for that. We were able to use the same tech that we had from the adult side. There were some modifications on our technique endoscopically that we were doing to help facilitate it working, but it worked out fine. And so now we're probably doing about 30 cases a year, which is, I think, considered probably the highest in the country or the world from a pediatric volume standpoint. And what was the paradigm before? What was the standard paradigm then? The standard paradigm was just like how endoscopic was in the adults. It was a craniotomy or more maximal approaches. And now it's not to say endoscopic approach is for every surgery. I mean, just not. It's for anterior-based tumors. And in those, anterior-based tumors that are favorable. And there's a lot of fa features that are favorable and unfavorable. So it's not like every surgery can be done this way. But those surgeries that were favorable in pediatrics just like the adult version had to make a conversion that they did in the early 2000s, we started doing that in this 2010 shifting over. And so th those were the aspects that they were getting craniotomies before. And now we are able to do endoscopic procedures in a lot of these. And with the 30 cases you do a year now, what are the indications for doing it? And how far have you pushed the envelope in that respect? Sure. So the most common thing is a tumor called a craniopharyngioma. It's a benign but locally aggressive tumor that has a bimodal distribution, they, either kids or adulthood. And that's the most common pediatric indication that we're doing these tumors for. There are other tumors, pituitaries. You'll have some congenital, what's called encephalocele, where essentially you have some brain tissues herniated into the sinus due to a, a malformation on birth. And we're doing the, and then certain biopsies of certain other tumors like germinomas and things of that nature. But craniopharyngiomas are the highest volume tumor. And just to segue a little bit, I want to talk about your role as director of marketing as well. Sure. You know, I think there's a lot of innovation going on at Penn and a lot of cool developments. And one aspect of that innovation is having sound research and amazing clinicians that are able to push that forward. But it's also getting the word out there, right? Like getting other people to see what's going on, maybe get inspire other individuals at other institutions to do the same, not just from the healthcare provision of care perspective, but also for patients to understand that these are options as well for them in the indications or conditions they have. And so how did your role within marketing develop and how did you become the uh, director of marketing? I think I got forced in it somewhere. I don't <laughs> totally remember. It's been a little while. I think I took that role on in 2016 or 17. I'm a very system-based person. I like seeing systems, understanding systems, and optimizing systems. And marketing has traditionally been a very poor aspect for academic centers. We basically rest on our laurels, for lack of a better term, that we're a high-level academic institution. 
you should want to come to us for whatever reason, because we're that center of excellence and you really shouldn't ask any questions. And again, I, I think that's a very old school type of thought. So when I was given the opportunity department and given some resources to put behind me, I was excited to create a marketing team. We've got a team of about 10 people, which includes three physicians, three or four administrators. We've got a couple people who are from the direct health system marketing team. And then we've even hired someone part-time from a social media standpoint as well. And so that was an interesting mind to see what we really could accomplish and can't accomplish. Again, there's a lot of constraints on these health systems on what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. So it's not like we can do, like if you were a mom and pop shop of two or three ENTs in the community, they really can do whatever they want. Ours, we, are, we still have some constraints, but despite that, there, there was some um, big power we could leverage behind it for marketing. And uh, what kind of perspective or, I guess, techniques do you take from a marketing perspective to advertise like the department or get the word out there on social media or the way you guys market? Right. So great, great question. And obviously, I don't have any marketing background, but this seems reasonably basic is who's your audience, right? So who's the audience? So we actually have two separate audiences. So the traditional marketing is usually your audience is the, the consumer, the direct consumer. And there's a lot of aspects of medicine that have gone that way. I think you might allude to orthopedics is actually very much in that way. It's direct to consumer. Ours, if, what we just talked about, skull-based surgery, that's really not a direct to consumer market at all. I mean, what that market is, we're trying to identify people who in the region will identify those patients. So an ENT in the community, or I mean, it can be anywhere in the country, an ENT identifies a skull-based tumor based on symptomatology scans, then we are marketing to that group for, let's use me as an example specifically, and it's not just me, there's a neurotology group, our head and neck group does these high-level transoral robotic surgeries, a lot of different aspects of it where we're basically tertiary and quaternary care. So there we're marketing directly towards other otolaryngologists or other people who are going to identify these tumors. Flip side is, we also have a division of general otolaryngologists here. Those are more marketing towards direct-to-consumer. So direct-to-consumer then, that's what you're talking about looking at showing your outcomes for sinusitis or outcomes for sleep apnea, et cetera, et cetera, where we can then focus towards them. So we do have two separate arms that we're looking at from a marketing standpoint. So anytime I have some sort of skull-based outcomes work, I'm not going to just post that to the consumer because it's really not in their level of understanding exactly what's going on. Now, the flip side of this is some of that research, we never do it for marketing. I mean, we do research for patient quality improvement, outcomes in medicine by and large, but you will have a patient who may have some sort of sinonasal malignancy, heaven forbid, and they're doing their research online and they say, wow, University of Pennsylvania has done a lot of research in X field. And they may inadvertently find us based on that, which is not unreasonable. That was more a side consequence, not in it, not a purpose of doing the research. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And with the team that you're working with in terms of marketing or uh, the information you want to get across, I feel like certain concepts or uh, techniques or discussing certain components of surgery, if individuals have the domain knowledge, if you're talking to another ENT, you have that baseline to then have a conversation. But when you're communicating between teams or groups of individuals with different levels of expertise or domain knowledge, how does that communication look like for you in terms of simplifying it enough to trying to explain it to other people? Great, great question. And I've been called out on this, and I think most surgeons probably have, is 
that's part of the system um, that I was talking about that you have these administrators or you have the you have a the marketing team from the health system. You have people with that education that under who actually don't have a medicine background and they understand exactly what you're asking. You know, one of our big projects was our website overhaul and it had to go through a lot of different iterations to get to the level that makes sense for the general audience, because that's hard for us because that's our language that we're talking all the time, right? But that was one of our, I think, our most fruitful endeavors. So our website, if you would see it in 2016, it hadn't been updated in years. And our marketing team was able to get us the data on how many unique hits a month we get there. Any guesses in 2017, how many unique hits the University of Pennsylvania Otolaryngology website gets in a month? Um, 50,000. 50? It was under 400 hits a month. Oh, wow. So we were under 400 hits a month in 2017. And so then we went through a very big revamping process where basically we went through every single subspecialty, added a lot of content, and then continued to tweak it, videos, interactive nature where you can communicate as far as getting appointments in the office, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're up to about 55,000 a month. So more back to where a number you you would expect. Again, remember, we are still a niche field. And I don't think Penn is unique. A lot of university institutions, we traditionally have not focused in these aspects before, but I think the paradigm is shifting that I think we all need to. Yeah, I think that's definitely important from like a medical student perspective too. I think, you know, when we're reaching out to find opportunities for research or just wanting to get to speak with cool people like you, like, Finding an avenue to be able to access that network of individuals or being able to communicate, I feel like the internet is the first avenue to do so, right? And so if you have an interface that is easy for individuals outside of medicine or wanting to go into medicine to navigate, it makes it easy for everybody. Exactly. Completely agree. And in terms of how you track metrics, right? Is it in terms of outcomes of these marketing strategies? Is it how many patients can we convert within our system? Like what metrics do you use to track your success? Right. So, I mean, great question. And just so we're totally transparent, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different metrics we're tracking. I think the most important metric we track is our quality of care, which is not the marketing aspect, but just quality of care. So there's a lot of metrics we track on patient-related outcomes. If patients have complications, how we're doing surgically, how we can improve, how we can improve length of stay, how we improve patients not going to ha having not the, not needing rehab, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of quality aspects that we track, and those are our primary focus. On from a marketing standpoint, some of the things that we track are exactly what we talked about. And we, we just talked about the website traffic. We talk about how many referrals physicians are getting, new patient referrals. We built in some systems, and there are companies out there that help provide online reviews like Google reviews and things of that nature to increase the the bump for those. And that again is more for our general otolaryngologists, no, not so much our subspecialists. And then again, you alluded to it, but we do look at the number of new patients that are converted to surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. So we are tracking a number of different metrics on that standpoint for sure. Definitely. And in terms of you know the future of how marketing interacts with medicine, Digital marketing is a very big space, and I feel like we're slowly adopting that or getting into that space for medicine and physicians thinking about those things. How do you see the future of marketing integrating into healthcare and you know, not even physicians branding themselves and marketing themselves, but big systems or health institutions using marketing, leveraging marketing uh, for healthcare? 
So I think they clearly already are. My impression based on some of the constraints, which is the constraints are you had to be careful with what information you give out on patient care, on specific patients, for example, things that we had to be a little cognizant about that we are in healthcare that's a little different than a lot of other fields. And I don't mean in a better or worse way, just a different way. Healthcare traditionally has run much slower, right? So we have always been behind the curve, but quite honestly, we eventually will get to the curve. So I think we'll just follow every other field. It'll just continue to be slower for the variety of kind of unique circumstances that we deal with. And to conclude the episode, what are you most excited about the future? Ah, everything. I mean, this is fantastic. It's the fact that you're coming here and you're doing a podcast that I would never have thought of when I was going through medical school of thinking something like this could be done. And then you can deliver this knowledge out for other people. I think that's really, really cool. So I think what I'm most excited about is actually seeing the future generations like you who have a knowledge base uh, and an information base, you know, whether it's this, whether it's social media, whether it's AI. I mean, these are things that I didn't grow up with that will then be able to incorporate what we're already doing and actually improve the field that much. So that's what I'm most excited about. I'm just excited for you guys to come through. I'm super excited to see the future too. Well, Dr. Dapa, thank you so much for coming on the Stride Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.